Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to Jerusalem News, JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we keep you up to date with what's going on in Israel and make you make sure that you can still feel connected and analyze things beyond the headlines. I'm Michael Unterberg, your host. Almost forgot to say my name, I'm straight to my co-host Alan. <laughs> Goldman, whose name I do remember. How's it going, Alan? It's going great, Mike. How good. How's your falafel? It's really good. Old City Falafel is old school. Yeah, he makes it very well. Our third chair this week is filled with a new guest whose name I will get correctly, Middle East journalist David Harris. How's it going, David? All well and good, but I would contest that... that Decent falafel is not available in the old city. You did say old school. I think it tastes old, past its sell-by date. Real falafel, Lebanon, Dubai, much, much, much more real, much greener, much tastier, much fresher, fresher, better herbs. Uh, we get it. You cover the Middle East. We get it. We often ask David to uh, to speak to our students. So he's an amazing resource for us. So we invited him to join us today for our conversation. How are you in general, aside from your falafel uh, uh, aficionado status? 48.36%. That's pretty good for you, isn't it? Yeah, it's 10% up on normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for David, I would say that's higher than average. Um, so this week, as we record, I'm not sure when you're listening to it, but this week, is, we're late in August. We're August 30th today. And yesterday was the 120th. Uh, anniversary of the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland. 120 is the legendary Jewish lifespan, so this is, I guess, sort of inauspicious. We only use one microphone, so the eating sounds don't come out so well. Uh, it is sort of an auspicious anniversary, which Alan will celebrate by making weird eating noises. Um, but we wanted to spend today talking about the uh, relevance of this event, the revolution that this event represents, and it's not something that we think about so much. I don't know that people are super conscious of it. So we just wanted to give a little bit of background into the event itself. What happened 120 years ago when Theodor Herzl convened the first Zionist Congress? Why was that a revolution? How did that affect the age that they lived in? What were the repercussions going further? And today, how did that what did that do for today? So it's not an episode only about Theodor Herzl. It's about this specific event. It's focusing on this institution that he created and the revolution that it was. So, Alan, would you just give us like a brief historical overview of what this event was in, in summary? Okay. So first of all, I want to relate to the eating part. <laughs> Most people think that teachers don't really do that much. But the truth is, we don't really have a lot of time in life. So in the teacher's lounge, we also eat. And that's why we often are at bagel joints. It is a super accurate uh, representation of how we work. Um, So also, there's another interesting thing that's, I think, good to point out, which is the end of the year seven has lots of uh, uh, interesting... um, uh, dates in the 20, in the Zionist movement, beginning with 1897, the first Zionist Congress. Then we go to you know uh, 1917, which is the Balfour Declaration. 1947, the Partition Plan. 1967, obviously the Six Day War, and and the, it's very interesting. So this year we have lots of milestones: 120 years to the Zionist Congress, 100 years to Balfour. 70 years to the State of Israel, the partition plan, State of Israel, 47, and then, of course, the 50-year to the, to the um, 
what we call the Six Day War. As a master practical Kabbalist, what do you make of that? Seven is the natural order of the world. That's how the things work. Eight. I was totally joking, but he actually has an answer. You chassid you. <laughs> eight is above, is miraculous. That's Hanukkah, is eight, we could say. Seven is the natural order of the world. That's the whole point. Zionism was saying it's time for Jews to take control and work within the natural order of the world to bring us back to our, our state and create our country. So you come to us for social studies and and news and and uh, history, and you get a little Hasidic Advartor from Alan. That was actually really really clever. I thought. Did you know that that was coming, David? No, I'm I'm Mr. Cynical, so I, I'm sitting here <laughs> looking at the thing. It's just the number seven, man. <laughs> we could debate that for the rest of the episode, but but just sort of. Go over the events and overview. So the exciting thing is, again, uh, really we have to go back just a step to the Dreyfus trial and um, Herzl's transformation from one who believed in assimilation, integration, maybe even conversion for all the Jews and the answer to the Jewish problem, in quotes, which is what they called it at the time. The Jews called it that as well. And the Jewish problem meaning the non-integration of the Jews into European culture, both because the Jews were reluctant to assimilate and there was a corresponding anti-Semitism in society. Yeah, I'm not so sure the first statement is 100% true. The Jews were reluctant to assimilate because we see Herzl himself really wanted to assimilate, and he realized that it wouldn't matter how much he assimilated, he would always still be seen as Jew. And that's what the Dreyfus trial ends up being sort of the... The you could say the um, you know the hammer that hits the nail for him that says in our narrative whether that's accurate yeah. psychologically true I don't what? know historically what whether that event had the impact on the life of Herzl he later on would refer to it as this turning point event but yeah. historians because historians who look at his diaries question if it if he wasn't creating a narrative to explain his evolution but it really wasn't so much that. That's very much an aside. Not, yeah, not to get too much into it, but I think that I think that what obviously he had a person goes develops in the life, and it certainly causes. I think. I mean, I think it's a, it's a given. It is a historical fact that he becomes an activist for creating the Jewish state. After that, so there are things like well, the, the Dreyfus trial, of course, was this French officer who was tried and convicted for a crime he pretty clearly didn't commit of committing treason against France by selling secrets to or planning to sell secrets to Germany. Um, there was almost no evidence. There was no legitimate evidence against him. The only evidence they had was a written document that didn't look like his handwriting, but they got a person to testify that he faked his handwriting. It looked like the handwriting that he would make as a fake. It was just a ridiculous trial. Uh, and then it came out, the actual person who did it, and it was this whole controversy. But Herzl covering that story, so in the famous way that we tell the story, Herzl at the, at the, uh, was covering the, uh, when he was humiliated publicly, they ripped apart his uniform and they broke his sword and they decommissioned him from the army. Herzl was there, and he, the way we tell the story is how Herzl talked about it five years later, where he said, I was shocked that they weren't yelling death to the traitor or death to the spy, they were yelling death to the Jew. The, the reason that historians aren't totally convinced that that's not a retro vision of Herzl's either memory playing tricks on him or him telling a story for rhetorical effect is in his diary that night, he wrote that they were yelling death to the traitor. Mm. So, so there's a whole 
argument over how much of that is his. So, right. so what, I, what I was saying is that after that, he becomes essentially an, an activist yeah. for the Jewish state. That's what I meant in terms of transformational point, because after that, he ends up coming with this idea to gather all the people who are talking about, you know, the, this new movement, the Zionist movement called, right, this talking about um, repatriating the Jews to their, to their land and creating some kind of national home. And size them, get them all together in one what would become known as the Zionist Congress. I think first he writes Der Judenstadt, right? Yeah. He writes the yeah, Jews, yeah. the Jew state, and he makes it. There is this nascent movement of people who are talking about returning to Israel, but it's not an organized political movement, really. When Herzl comes on the it's scene, a decentralized political yeah. movement. As a decentralized political movement, people were already what's called at the, in the midst of the first Aliyah when people are moving to Israel with a sense of. Um, some kind of national uh, reawakening, and um, from uh, even from the social side, because you already have you know th- those are the first aliyah were were you know multifaceted from socialist to you know settler you know. But I would say it's culturalist. Let's say it's proto-political in the sense that they're not talking about lobbying. They're not talking about creating a central organization. Um, so there's this movement of Jews who are saying we have to figure out a way to become no, I, agriculturalists I, I, and go back to Palestine. I mean, maybe we're being a little bit too, I don't know, pedantic here, but I think that that's not 100% true. We're being too pedantic? I think it's, uh, I think that what's happening there, you do have people talking about that, but because it's so decentralized, you have very many different voices. And that's, that is the, 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 we could say the novelty, the chiddish of Herzl, what he brings to the new movement, which is so, which is, gets him to be called the father of, you know, modern Zionism because he doesn't really last around so long. Another seven years will last. But the, the novelty that he brings is this idea of getting everybody in one Congress, under one roof, to talk it out. People with very divergent ideologies, people with even contradictory ideologies about what Zionism means. Um, and he does. He manages to bring them all together to Basel in, 19, in 1897, in, as we know, August 29th, which was yesterday, the, the 120-year date. So that, that's that, not that, that many people, the first one. I don't remember how many. Uh, even though I'm usually good at that stuff, I don't remember. Yeah, you're the one who's supposed to be good at that. There were 34.6. Um, <laughs> I, I want to ask you a question. I, this really is much more, much more your areas of expertise than mine. I'm more into the modern stuff. But if... Herzl and the gathering wouldn't have taken place in, in Baal, as, as we French say. Um, would we, 120 years later, be in the same position with the Jewish state, etc.? Because the movement had already started, not politically, but in terms of movement of human beings. I mean, I, I, I generally believe there's not nothing, no kind of no movement like this or development is dependent on one person. So I generally believe that it would have happened and they would have come together if it wasn't in, in, in Basel or however you English, French people say it. Um, in 1897, it would have been six months later, a year later, but the, the movement was coalescing. It just needed a person who had that idea. To, everybody should be doing it together and bringing these divergent ideas together. And so that, that great idea was also seen. First of all, the reason why they did it in Basel and Switzerland was because the German Jews didn't want it there. And in fact, one of, uh, I think Germ- uh, one of uh, Herzl's father's friends, who was a doctor, who he approached like a prestigious doctor, s- suggested he see a psychiatrist because um, it was crazy. What are you doing? Um, there were some people who, who called him the Jewish Jules Verne, like he's writing ridiculous science fiction, this idea that the Jews are going to return and have a state. I would also, I agree with Alan. 
to me, that's your question, David, is sort of like asking, um, would India be independent today if it weren't for Gandhi? I mean, probably. It probably would just shaken out a little differently. The forces were there. The individual human who happened to crystallize it and take, and, and take that moment and shape it and harness it means that it's going to come out in a specific way. So the specifics may be different, but I think the event would. Where did Uganda, Paraguay fit in in the historical, in the chronology of, of, of this movement from him being very unaffiliated to becoming this uber Zionist? So, so it, over, he, he, like Alan says, he doesn't live much longer. He writes, it, it's in 1897, he's going to die in 1903, 1904, Alan's yeah, the, 1904. 1904. So he, he doesn't live very long. But every year there's a Zionist Congress. And his, his big novelty wasn't, it, there's, there's two sides of novelty to what Herzl did. One of them is the one that Alan said, which is everybody's in one room. And it grew every year. And it was, I don't care if you're religious, I don't care if you're, you want to go into farming, I don't care if you want to take the political track, but ultimately this is one movement we work together. We're going to internally organize like we're a proto-government that will assume a state, and externally we will, because we represent now a landless government, we will begin foreign, uh, we, we, we will be foreign policy, where we are going to start negotiating with a lot of different nations. And so his first target is the sultan, which takes him a number of years to get a meeting with the sultan, which he tries to get through, through Germany because he wants Palestine. But in Der Judenstadt, the Jew state, which I think is, uh, Connor Cruz O'Brien says that we often translate as the Jewish state, but that would be Der Judische Stadt. And he was intentionally calling it the Jew state because it had that pejorative. You, in other words, oh, anti-Semites, you want us out of here? Fine, we're out. So he writes in Der Judenstadt that obviously the first choice is, is Palestine, but, but it may have to be some place like Argentina that's not developed and will go somewhere else. In other words, because he was a uh, – his, what, what brings him to Zionism is shelter Zionism. We need a place where we can have self-rule so that we're not victimized. Palestine's first choice. Other choices can be on the table. At yeah. So ju- just to give that some relevance, um, I'm actually in the middle of watching a movie. It's a two-and-a-half-hour movie that takes – Weeks. This might sound a little bit off topic, but you'll understand why. It's called The Lost City of Z, or or Z, as as we said. It's set in the early 1900s. It's about an American, a British military officer who goes off for the Royal Geographical Society to try to map out South America. And the place that they want him to go to is the border between Bolivia and Brazil. There are no real borders there. They've got jungle uh, and, and. you know, just impossible conditions. And so when you watch a movie like that, and then in a separate conversation that we're having now about about Theodore Herzl and the development of the Zionist ideal, you can understand, because to us in, in the modern era, the idea of it being anywhere other than Israel is inconceivable. But you've got to understand the broader context at the time, that this was the time of discovery, the time of the Westerners, trying to find and also conquer the, these uncharted areas. So it makes perfect sense that Latin America could have been a home for, for a Jewish movement. Um, and, and given what we know that the Jews did to the land of Israel, turning the swamps into fields, etc., etc., they would have been a very real candidate for having done the same to the Amazonas, for example. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility. No, I think, I think it's not entirely unrealistic. When he- yeah, I mean, just the context that we're missing, which is why 
why it's, it was such a serious discussion. I think well, it was the, up to the discussion. Yeah. In other words, yeah, in Der Judenstadt, he just mentions that. So, so he even before Der Judenstadt, even Herzl himself says, well, he says Argentina. He says, and there were other plans. Palestine or Argentine? He wrote, yeah. which I guess sounds better in German. I guess I don't know. Because there were there were people who were territorialists, which meant again we have to solve this Jewish problem. The Jewish problem is is they're not integrating, so they need a piece where they can be themselves, which is like a shelter. But that hasn't have anything to do with ultimate redemption, as you would as well, as the Zionist movement starts talking about you know talking about it. So they're really talking about safety. Well, Herzl himself, when he eventually starts talking about Zionism as an infinite ideal that it allowed Jews to yeah. reach their full potential, but he, I don't know that he thinks it's geographically contingent on being in the ancient homeland. So, again, as, as I, I will always do, because I'm less into the history and more into the present, um, if you look at what anti-Semites today in Europe say, they say, leave our country, you've got a homeland in Israel, um, and you've got the Iranians, etc., who are saying, leave the Middle East, you've got a homeland in Poland and Germany. Um, and, and I think that maybe it sucks, right? Absolutely, you know. I, but but I think that this is the modern day. We in the modern day can understand Herzl through that prism. They weren't wanted here. They weren't wanted there. Everybody said you're an SEP. You're somebody else's problem. And Herzl was taking that and saying, okay, we need to find a place that is our own. And that is why he chose Palestine, because of all of the um, historical associations with with that particular land. But at the same time, because of the um, what was then the the, the Iranian equivalent in in the late 1800s, um, he was prepared to take anywhere just because Jews... Um, as Alan, you and I were saying before we started recording, the Jews are a people, they're an ethnicity. Yes, of course, we have that link to, to the Holy Land, but, but we as a grouping could kind of settle anywhere and still be a people because we have the shared history, the shared genes, etc., etc. Well, it's also your lost city of Z point, which is that we know we're going to go somewhere that's underdeveloped and develop it. So Palestine was very underdeveloped. There are other places that are under, that's, that's going to have to be a built-in part of the project. And the world, I mean, I think there were still under a billion people on the, in the world. It was a much less populated world, so the world was much more open. And I think that we have to understand anti-Semitism a little bit, even though we just did two different episodes on anti-Semitism, but the idea that in Europe it was institutionalized anti-Semitism, which meant, and this was the killer for, for Jews like Herzl, which is that there was a, there was a, there was a glass ceiling. They could only go so far as professionals. And that's why Herzl writes for himself um, in college not being able to join the fencing team. He sets up his own Jewish fencing team. So uh, to me, that, that means always stuck out as the, I don't know, analogy or the, the idea there. Oh, I can't, I can't be like who I want to be can't be on the fencing team so i'll set up an alternative option which is our own fencing team oh i can't be a european totally because there's a glass sitting i'll set up my own european country in middle east or argentina or where have you well i want to stick a second to uganda because i think it, it bothers me how misunderstood that story is because at the 1903 zionist convention which i guess is the sixth one the sixth or seventh seventh it's the seventh so at the seventh 
Seven. <gasps> oh, it's the seven. Yeah. So well, at, if it was six, I would have said like Arab Shabbat, just before Shabbat. So that fits into the. That's the nice Hasidic thing. You can always make it work. Yeah, so you can do anything. Yeah, drush. Yeah. yeah, add one to the gematria number, and it matches. And in the eighth one, what was it, what was the significance about the number eight? Nineteen forty-eight. No, the, the what, decoration no, 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 of the no, state. What, no, you said this, all the sevens are about the about realization nature. of things, nature. Yeah. What's eight? Eight is miraculous. Is above nature. And what happens in nineteen oh four? Herzl goes to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and uh, and the second Aliyah begins, where Rav Cook makes Aliyah Ben Gurion. A lot of these, the 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 founding culture of the state comes in 1904. So the seventh one. So at the seventh one, Herzl had been getting. He was rebuffed by the Sultan. He was. He had talked to the Pope, and the Pope said, "I can't help you." He had. He had basically, at first, for the first five or six years, it was so impressive who he was getting audiences with. And at the Zionist Congress, he would blow them away with the con- I mean, this is a nothing idea. And it, he's turning it into, because politics is perception, to use the Kissinger phrase, he created this perception that we're a real group that have a real political thing. And he's getting meetings with heads of state. So at the 7th, he reports on two of his meetings. The first one he reports is Pobodinestov, who we talked about a couple weeks ago. He was the uh, Russia, the Tsar's interior minister who said, we're going to solve our Jewish problem in Russia a third of them will get killed in pogroms, a third of them will leave because of oppression, and a third will just assimilate through the army. Herzl met with him because he saw, and this we also talked about in the anti-Semitism episodes, we have a shared goal. You want the Jews out, I want the Jews out. And the Zionist Congress, which was made up of Western European Jews like Herzl, who were in a much more cosmopolitan framework, and Eastern European Jews who lived under the Tsar, and the Western European Jews sort of got why Herzl was doing it. You're trying to save the Eastern European Jews. The Eastern European Jews were horrified that he would sit down in a room with this man. This man, this man is in our... In a, the epitome of anti-Semite. <laughs> I mean, he's the Hitler of 1903. <laughs> and, then, and then Herzl says, okay, okay, okay. He says, okay, I've also been meeting with the British. He went to testify in England about... They were having this British... Uh, 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 somewhere in Parliament, they were having this inquiry board about their immigration problem, which was their way of saying there's too many Jews coming. So Herzl was called in as a Jewish expert, whatever that means, and he testified. And while he was there, he was meeting with people from the foreign ministry, and they said, well, you know, we've got plenty of colonial spaces. Maybe we should be looking into things. And off the top of their head, they said, well, what about like somewhere in Africa, in East Africa? We have areas that maybe, maybe, go, you know, maybe send... Uh, a team to go scope it out, see if that would be a possibility. Because of the pogroms, the pogroms are 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 getting to great heights at this point in Eastern Europe. Yeah, in the timeline, I don't know exactly when Kishinev, but the, the the peak pogrom is is either happened or about to happen. It's happened in 1903, I'm pretty sure, is Kishinev before the Congress. Herzl comes and after this Pobodinestov thing, where he's lost, yeah, he's lost the the he's lost some ground with the Eastern Europeans. He says. I have this conversation going with the British. I want to keep this conversation going. I don't know that East Africa is a realistic thing. But if we send a committee to look at it, they'll see that we're serious. And I want to keep a relationship with Britain. Now, that's a lot of political foresight. In 1917, it is the British who are going to come up with the Balfour Declaration to say that we're going to help you build a a home. And he says, I want to, the British, I think we have a, a path with. Let's put it to a vote. Do we send a committee? It's not should we take Uganda as opposed to Palestine? It's that should we send this committee to look at East Africa as a way of keeping the door open with the Brits? They hold a vote. 
at the Congress, at the 7th Congress. The yes votes win. Let's send the committee because we're not making any decisions. The Eastern Europeans mostly, who are the, the West, and why? Why did the Western Europeans vote for it? We have to save the Eastern Europeans. The faster we, we this is urgent. There's an emergency here. People are being killed and raped and burned in pogroms. The Eastern Europeans, for the most part, many of them sit on the floor and tear their clothes like they're sitting Shiva, that there are Jews who are willing to consider another land. And collectively, the losing side of the vote writes to Herzl and says, if you send this committee saying to the British that we would consider the possibility of any other land, we're out of the Congress. You've lost us completely. No, and we, messed, we messed up. We messed up? Six Zionist Congress is, is 1903. That's why I always... Because they missed one in 1902. Ah, so, so it's the sixth. Yeah. So I always hedge my bets because I can't remember. Yeah. So it's the sixth. So... Um, and Herzl, Herzl immediately relents, and he writes back to them. Oh, we, we won't. Fifth, not even fifth, fifth, fifth. Fifth? Fifth. There we go. Yeah, we're doing terrible today, huh? Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. That's why you always got to check on your teachers. They don't, even in the teachers, especially in the teachers' lounge, you always got to double check your teachers. Um, but they, um, but he writes to them, you know I was a Jerusalem sixth. firster. Six. That's what I but I will figure out in class. It's six. It's okay. It's six. There was not a Zionist Congress in 1902. Alan, Alan, Alan yeah. put up, put up your fingers. Okay, this is one. This <laughs> exactly. is two. Exactly. Now we're trying to get the date of it, but um, David, we're not math teachers. That's not fair. <laughs> exactly. I always say, I always say That's why. I think, that's why I went into history. Yeah. We just got to the pinnacle, the climax of the story, and now we're back on your abacus. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what. So he writes to them. You know, I was a Jerusalem firster. In other words, I always made that the priority, but I was willing to. But now I see. Basically, 1903. The result of that is that of the Six Zionist Congress is that the Zionist movement decides it's Israel or nothing. The European Jews basically say, we will withstand the pogroms if it means holding out for our homeland. Forgive the cynical question. Again, I'm bowing to, to both of your, your expertise on this. Uh, was the reason that the, 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 the Westerners um, said, we'll, we'll take anywhere or we'll consider anywhere purely to save those in, in Eastern Europe, or was it because they didn't want the Eastern Europeans ending up in Western Europe? Uh, it's, there is no such thing as an answer purely. Of course, it's a, it's a whole complicated mess of emotions, and those, those Eastern-Western tensions are going to be throughout the Zionist movement. And uh, you know, we, don't, we don't really see anything really like that today because they've been, you see it between Ashkenazim and Sfardim in the middle years of the state more. You see it today, unfortunately, with Ethiopians. But, but at that point, there is no question that there's tremendous... It's complicated. That what the German Jews called the Asjuden, that they're, they're, they're a lower kind of Jew. And so, unfortunately, I'm sure there are, everyone has multiple motives. So, just on, on that, because you're talking about Ashkenazim and Sephardim, again, Alan and I were talking about this earlier today, both in Holland and in the UK, and I'm sure in other places, the actual older community was, was, was well, uh, Spanish Portuguese, which we call Sephardim incorrect. The really real Sephardim, and they were the upper yeah. class, and they saw the German Jews coming in as the lower. Yeah. Exactly, and, and, and so you find in, in the late 1800s, around this time, there was quite a, uh, a, a strong uh, vociferous opposition, including turning to the, the political, the non-Jewish political elite, and saying, you know what, let's be careful about letting these Eastern Europeans into our country. 
There are going to be accusations about bad attitudes towards Eastern Europeans that go throughout. It's a bigger topic than today's, but the but the so the wrong kinds of Jews. So attitude. Like, like any people, Jews have always been uh, right. Having well, I know, and I don't want to. I maybe this is a weird comment for a white person to make, but I've always found it odd that within the African American community, at least, you, you you at least historically had this, oh, lighter skinned is better, and I always found that so sad that you had. How could a, a, an oppressed minority be racist and ethnically insensitive within its own community? But every but Jews did the same thing. Absolutely, of course they still do. I. I I, I'm still horrified, and we're way off topic, that the idea of light and dark, black and white, that the lighter colours, in, in just in, in conversation, in education, that you, you think of light as being good and dark as being black, it, it, it's, it just boggles my mind, if that's correct English. Yeah, so, so you're a Melville fan, because in Moby Dick, white is like the, that horrible emptiness, yeah. Now we're really off so top. Back to Congress. I, I, I must admit, because I was looking up, as many of our students do, on my phone to just get the dates right and all that. I little missed. Uh, Wait, so you're saying that that your say. smartphone isn't pure evil? That it's actually a tool of integrated learning and interaction with the world? That's interesting. Yes or no? But I did not hear what you said when I was looking at it. So actually, they claim <laughs> they claim you were not multitasking. You went off task, switch task, and now came back. Yes, correct. Yeah. So I just want to sort of point out, I didn't want to get everybody straight in our heads, maybe because it's important to me, but nobody else, but that the Sixth, Congre- Sixth Zionist Congress was in 1903, and it was, a, um, it was after the major Kishinev pogroms. Pogroms were in April, uh, and the Congress is in August. And it was certainly a reaction to those pogroms. And pogroms in any given instance are only a reflection of a heightened tension that's happening anyway. And, and pogroms in general were, were on yeah. their conscience. But Kishinev was both because of the number of people, the magnitude, and also because of the international news coverage. There were photographs that went around the world. It was such a shock to the system. And also, it's the beginning of the 20th century. There was this... Pictures. It's the first time you Yeah, there were journalistic photographs. But also, there was this feeling, what's that, trusha? Uh, there was this sense, there was a sense that the 20th century, we've turned a corner. And so to see this medieval horror in photographs in your local newspaper. So it, it was very much in the year in 1903. I, I, I think one of the, certainly in, in, in my mind, when I think of pogroms, the first thing I think of are, are the, the people who are killed, um, yeah, the dead and the, the houses that are burned and so on. And I think much less about the refugee crisis that, that it caused. But, but that is the, the crux of what we're talking about. Unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about the dead. But what are you going to do about all the people who have been in those villages, all the people who are in the next village who, who know it's coming to them and have to run away? Where do you put these people? And, and, and legitimately, the people in Western Europe were concerned. You can't have more people coming over here, etc., etc. And as you both rightly have said earlier in this conversation, this was a time of discovery, a time of voyage, a time of expansionism throughout the, the unknown world. And so it was perfectly logical time um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s to have conversations about about statehood, about residency, about employment, about um, you know agriculture. I mean, these were all basic conversations that weren't just being held in Jewish society, but in society in general. And, and what we're talking about, and clearly there was an emergency in the Jewish world, but it's just a reflection of what was happening elsewhere, as has often been the case throughout Jewish history. 
Right, and I think the proof of that, if we're looking for metri- metrics data, proof of that is the great um, migratory um, tour, migration, sorry, migration towards America, not just of Jews, of Irish, of Germans, of, you know, people from all over, and America's gates were Italians. Open. Italians. Americans gates, America's gates were open, so for many of those, it was, it, that was the extra push needed. To send them over but to they them. were coming more for ep- economic opportunity. So I, I, no, I, I, always, I, I always, I always, you know, I'm a very a big chassid to there's always a push and a pull. It always works together. The push was, is always, you know, some kind of impression. Anti- but Italy by the end of the 19th century is more or less sitting down. In, in, don't forget, in, in the example of I, the example, the, Ireland is in, in the potato famine. No, there's an enormous. Just, but it's not just the potato famine. Don't forget, until 1917, that date again, the Irish were under British control. And it wasn't just about, um, you know, London. There was soldiers. There's Bloody Sunday and there's rising yeah, violence. The and soldiers on the streets of Ireland, people are still being shipped off to wherever they're being shipped off to. And it's no coincidence that the first person to enter Ellis Island as a 15-year-old girl called Annie Moore came from Ireland. It wasn't a Jew. Right. Right. Very true. You're right. So um, and so back to the conference. I'm not 100 sure what you said because I was again on my smartphone. But it's not cokey swigging. Right. There. There's a very. they, They they a very political way out of this whole controversy, which is they vote to. Keep investigating. Well, although so many people, including most German Jews, thought that Herzl was out of his mind crazy, it was rational enough in the context of the age that it was a constantly growing movement. And Herzl got in the doors of these foreign leaders who said, oh, oh okay, we get it. They voted in favor of, of exploring the, the, you know, they voted in favor of exploring it, which in essence meant tabling it, but, but exploring it later. And by the way, the religious Zionists went with Herzl. Yeah, it's funny. That's a whole other conversation that the, that the religious Zionist world really changes in 67. Before yeah. 67, they're the most open to – they're the most pragmatic, the most open to compromise. Because they were Zionists who ha- of the religious faith, let's say. I mean, not really. But they were, they were Zionists who happened to be orthodox as opposed to religious Zionists. That's really sort of how they saw themselves, I think. Listen, if, if you don't buy in to some degree to the biblical narrative – you may not believe that particular stories happen nowhere in the flood and so on. But unless you buy into a connection, a historical connection between the Jewish ethnicity, the Jewish people and the land of Israel, again, it doesn't matter where you go. Yes, we're all Jews. We are culturally Jewish. We have a a, a connection to one another. What difference does it make whether it's Palestine or, or, or Argentine? Well, it's funny. It's so true. But the but the the interesting difference of the Eastern Europeans saying it's Palestine or nothing, Palestine or bust. So they were the people who were most in need at that time, and so they you would have thought would be the ones who would take anywhere. Correct, and they're the ones who were the, who felt that ethnic connection to the homeland in a way that wasn't it wasn't that they were religious in the in a classical sense. They certainly weren't observant. Jabotinsky was one of those people who sat on the floor and wrote. I couldn't. He, the logic was on their side, but I you couldn't. It felt like treason to turn against our our homeland. And Ad Gordon completely rejects that. Um, idea of you could be anywhere because also entirely secular. Yeah, one hundred percent secular is not a religious Jew in any sense. But Eastern European, that the Eastern Europeans, even the assimilated Eastern European Jew, had assimilated differently than the Western European Jew. Yeah, but also, well, A.D. Gordon was as much influenced by Tolstoy, right, and the connection to the land, back, the land that you have to have your own land to really be able to express yourself and be yourself. But that's a romantic. Yeah. 
psychological, cultural, social connection. It's not a logical, real politic connection. And the Western Europeans were much more real politic, and the Eastern Europeans were much more romantic. I I don't know if I agree. Don't forget, as you've been hinting, we're we're at the time where communism is beginning, okay? We're moving in that... 1905, I think, is the first failed room. Exactly. So we're starting... Bubbling. No, I was saying more than it's, it's, it's already there. So again, if you've got this idea, the idea of the land and, and so on, and connection, is, is, is and the idea of the motherland, uh, and you're being educated. Rogina. Yeah, you're being educated that way in schools, in churches, in the newspapers, and so on. But at the same time, you're Jewish, and you know you're a bit different. So that type of idea has already been inculcated into your brain, but you know that it's not quite for you. Therefore, if somebody comes along and starts talking about land, 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 and we've got this historical homeland there is a logical jump even if you're not religious if you were coming from the areas that would become the soviet union if you if your people are being massacred in pogroms and i can get you a place by 1906 and you say yeah let's see if we can hold out and go back to palestine which there was no way to get the sultan said absolutely the sultan told i don't know if he said this to herzl but i know he said it to the to to the the kaiser when Kaiser Wilhelm came to speak to him, he said, your, your empire... The, the ki- well, Kaiser didn't come to speak to him. Kaiser didn't come to speak to Herzl. No, he, first of all, Herzl came to speak to the Kaiser, yeah, yeah, exactly. and the Kaiser spoke to the Sultan yeah. before Herzl ever right. got to the Sultan. Yeah. Yeah, the way he said it sounded like that the Kaiser came to speak to Herzl. Like he, it, no, Herzl uh, wished. And that would be pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but the Sultan basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously... Because Herzl's pitch was, tell him that his empire is, 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 is declining. They lost North Africa already to the European powers. And you're, you're, you're sort of, you can create a Jewish colony in Palestine, and we'll renew energy and your economy, and we'll give you that, like, seed life back into it. And apparently the sultan said to the, this is what the Kaiser remembered, apparently, if I'm remembering correctly, when my empire dies, they can dissect it however they want. But I'm not going to let them cut into it while it's alive. And I know what the Jews want is to make their own piece of my country, and I'm not going to allow it. Like, it's not going to happen. So it was absolutely not going to happen. Now, the, the conditions that are going to change that are going to be World War I. And it's going to, that, that total shakeup of the world isn't predictable. So that logically, the, the desire to return to Palestine is kind of irrational at that point. It's not totally irrational because we'll keep pushing till we get it, but it's impractical for sure. And there is an element. Ben-Gurion, who's one of those people who comes from the Eastern European side, who's going to make Aliyah the next year, is going to have the famous quote, to be, to be a, a, a practical realist Zionist, you have to believe in miracles. And there is something miraculous in achieving this organization of Jews from around the world to sit together and make a plan to reunite and rebuild the homeland. It is crazy. And, and that's part of what Herzl does, is he takes the impossible. And, he, and by just having people in that hotel you know, banquet hall, he turns it into the beginning of a reality. And he writes in his diary that night, tonight I founded the Jewish state. Maybe nobody knows it yet. But within five years, at the most 50, everybody will. That's in 1897. And 50 years later, in 1947, the UN votes to create a Jewish state in Palestine. And that was the realist of, uh, the, of the story that Ben-Gurion was talking about. And the miraculous was in 1948-8, they declared the state and actually established it. Yeah, yeah. It's an age, we live in an age of miracles that we've, yeah. to a certain extent, become desensitized to. 
that we shouldn't be. And whether you view that religiously or historically miraculous, it's an amazing, it's an amazing time to be alive. So we're going to wrap here. And uh, I want to thank you, David. You're welcome uh, anytime. We can squeeze you in. I know you're very busy, and I, we really do appreciate you taking the time to schmooze with us today. It's a great pleasure. I am just floored, flabbergasted, dumbstruck by the incredible amount of knowledge and information that the two of you have, really. I wish I'd read books like you two did. Well, it turns out David's incredibly easily dumbstruck. So that we learned, we learned that today. So that's good. But we, we know your day is very busy, and we really appreciate We always appreciate when you take time for us. Um, thanks so much, Alan. And thank you, Mike. And thanks a lot, guys. Don't forget, uh, we really do appreciate those of you who have uh, given us feedback, and uh, in particular on iTunes. We cannot tell you how much that means to us. We love seeing our numbers grow of downloaders, so that means people are recommending us. And for that, we very much thank you and encourage that to keep going. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teachers Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ju Israel Gap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And if you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys.